0: So, three threads, again. Uh, let's talk about the shorter one, even though all three of these threads do tie into each other in their own ways. Um, first one I want to talk about is the Kira blockade Romulan thread. So first, Bross kind of hits Be- Be- Bejar. Kira with reality. Um, Romulan, Rom- the Romulan Star Empire means more to the Federation And the war effort right now than Bajor does. Now I say that in such a way, what I mean by that is under normal circumstances I imagine the Federation would have no problem taking Bajor's side here. But right now they're in the middle of a war which they would be losing without the Romulans. And we know this because they were losing without the Romulans. In fact they're still not winning with the Romulans. This is a duh kind of a situation basically. This is a nope So he kind of hits her with that reality, and she says, you sound a bit like a politician, too. And he's like, I mean, (laughs) look, what do you want from me? And it's interesting to think of because, God, I know this sounds horrible, but it's really hard to take Kira's side in this. Oh, don't mistake me from the individual perspective, from the microscopic perspective. It makes perfect sense. And as I already said, what the Romulans are doing are um, wrong. But at the same time, again, from the macroscopic perspective, you can see why it'd be more leaning in that direction. However, it's also not that cut and dry. If you're willing to bend over backwards and let the Romulans do anything in order to secure their cooperation, then what you have just done is weakened your own position, which is bad for many, many reasons. So you you still have to present a strong front, even as you attempt to placate. Now, this is interesting because this is the lesson that Ross effectively learns from this episode. He says that, you know, Kira changed his mind. The hard truth is that I think Ross recognized that Kira was not going to back down, that this was not a bluff, and that is specifically what allowed him to be like, yeah, okay, this can't be allowed to happen. Again, though, keep in mind the politics of this situation. What is Bajor to the Federation right now? A protectorate? An ally? A member? Well, actually, they're none of those things. They just happen to be a race that is on favorable terms with the Federation. But that's it. They're effectively a trade partner. Nothing more. What are the Romulans? Military allies. Also known as the highest form of ally. It's right below being part of the same organization. Yeah. (laughs) Still, Kira takes her 12 ships out. and Well... As I note in my notes here, this is Kira effectively trying to force the political situation. Kira playing at politics in her own particular way. I wondered in the middle of the episode if she was banking on the Bajoran reputation for not giving up in the face of, you know, unwinnable odds, because that is kind of the Bajoran rep after the occupation, and for good reason. But at the same time, it seems pretty clear that Senator Kretak was utterly unwilling to compromise on this one. That she presumed it was in fact a bluff and her reasoning for doing so was presuming that kira wasn't stupid she seemed utterly assured of her position because she presumed there was no way kira could actually mean what she was saying now what's interesting is by all accounts it does look like kira was bluffing right up until the wormhole reopens and they kick you know cost out and at that point it, she, you notice that her entire demeanor changes And so she's like, no, we're going to go ahead and do this. (laughs) Interesting to think about. So, moving on to the second plot thread, Quark, House of Quark, (laughs) decides to get involved with the Klingon mission. This is interesting in its own right, because if you really think about it, what we have is Worf, Bashir, O'Brien, and Quark going off on a mission to destroy shipyards. Now... On the one hand, you can kind of see... Well, let me just start with the obvious point. They don't really contribute anything to the mission. Quark is just there. Arguably, Worf is just there. O'Brien and Bashir probably do help because they're the ones who actually figure out the magnetic, you know, erupt-the-sun plan, but that's about it. It would have been easy, and in fact, I'm actually a little surprised they didn't go for this, to, to construct the episode in a way that each of them contributes in some way to the mission. They don't. But what I do find still admirable about it is they are still willing to go along. There's this nice little bit where Cork. I've said before that Cork has a particular tone when he's being honest, when he is legitimately telling the truth. He takes on this tone when he says... Uh, I wrote it down. What does he say exactly? Uh, Stovokor, here we come. The way he says that makes it clear he is accepting that he may die here. You'll also notice he has no problem standing up to Worf at multiple times. Now, in the interest of fairness, I do think Quark was played a little bit too irritating this episode. I think the Quark we know, especially one who has had as much experience with Klingons as he does, would know better than to do some of the things and say some of the things he says in the episode. But, he does stand up to Worf more than once. And, he is willing to die for this cause. And that is Quark. And... I think that's one of the reasons several Klingons who know him do respect him, because again, that's honorable, at least by Klingon code. The fact that Quark is willing to lay down his life for this cause speaks volumes in Klingon culture, and that then lays the the groundwork for the significance of all of them being there. They may not be the ones specifically doing the mission, but they are risking their lives just as anyone else is, because... Let's be honest, that mission should not have succeeded. In fact, if you're paying attention, it failed the first time, and they nearly died as a consequence of it. (laughs) But of course, it succeeds. Why wouldn't it? Oh, excuse me. I like how Martok is the one who has to slam Worf down. Worf! (laughs) Worf goes too far as well in this episode. But it's understandable why. Worf's an old school romantic, in a good way. And the problem with that, though, is that he didn't like the idea of having to share Dax with her closest friends. I'm sure some of you either yourselves or know someone personally who has had similar feelings in their lives, right? So, he didn't, he wanted to do this all on his own, as his own personal gesture to her. So he resented them. But Worf does apologize for it, because Because Worf's not an idiot, and as much as it may bother him that he can't do this on his own, he still can acknowledge how much it means that they're there. So, yeah, (laughs) I can completely see that. And as as O'Brien points out, Worf doesn't apologize all that often. So, that being said, there is one thing that kind of bothers me about the attack on the shipyard. It is such a devastating blow to Dominion operations that it's a little comical. (laughs) Really. I'm actually astonished at how amazingly this is going to change the war effort. This is one of their major shipyards, which they even mention in the Damar scene, where Damar is getting worse, by the way. Continuing cutbacks to Damar as he is just descending and descending into alcohol-induced stupor. (laughs) But anyways... They mentioned how this specific shipyard has to increase production, which is going to be difficult to do to begin with, but it's necessary because they need those extra ships, and gone. Yeah. Now, you remember how I made that whole big kerfuffle uh, two episodes ago about how they had to technobabble their way to a solution? This is kind of a halfway technobabble, but it's more of a not that I'm willing to forgive this. This feels more like them actually outthinking the opponent. There is a shipyard, which is incredibly well defended, that is orbiting a star. And, the, that's, they look at that situation and say, well, if we can actually interact with that star in a way to cause the star to erupt sufficiently that the star can then engulf the shipyards, we can destroy the shipyards in one fell swoop. Now that's not easy to do, and it's extremely dangerous and risky to do, And if they fail, then they will know for this kind of thing going forward. It may even move the shipyard entirely. But it is a specific weakness built into the construction of the shipyard, rather than we're going to program the shipyard to turn its things on itself by bouncing a beam off of the whatever. It's still a little technobabble, and I don't want to say that it isn't, but this feels a little more acceptable. Kind of gray there. Which brings me, of course, to the main plot. I looked it up, by the way, Nicole de Boer is how it's supposed to be pronounced. Nicole DeBoer, Miss DeBoer, does a very good job of Ezri in this episode, in my opinion. Which is good, because she has to. This is introducing Ezri Dax to the audience. And you'll notice, she is the focal point of a lot of the character stuff in this episode. As it's trying to establish who she is, what she is, why she is, and how she is. We find out she has a family who she can barely relate to. We find out she has trouble figuring out who she is. We hear her talk about how she's having sickness. She literally threw up all over a console because they happened to go to warp. Keeping in mind that she is a lieutenant, I believe, in the Federation, so she's pretty used to going to warps. So all this is just new to her. So she's having all these reactions, emotional, mental, and physical. And all of these help sell the point. But i got to be honest, the one thing that really helps sell more than anything else that this is Ezri Dax, a new person who has no idea what she is or how she's going. She even mentions she's a ship counselor, by the way. She has this bit where she orders a Ractogino. Now, nobody in the audience would notice that because half the crew drinks Ractoginos. But Ezri can't stand the taste of it. So she orders a Ractogino and... Blah, blah. I can't stand Ractogino, I just... It was her favorite drink. Here, Jake, take this. That's a nice touch that she is so unconsciously still reacting to stimuli from previous people while herself being substantially different. It's a very effective scene. Very efficient. And it gets across all of the points it needs to with one single scene. So, very, very well done. (laughs) I love the fact that she's a ship's counselor, by the way. Especially since that came up recently. And Well, DS9's never had a ship's counselor, which is actually funny in its own right. Now, I do also want to mention one other thing. This is especially helped by Brock Peters, who, as ever, manages to nail his role. He actually has somewhat of a a subdued role in this episode. Near as I can tell, part of that's because they dragged him into the middle of the desert. Like, that actually was Brock Peters in several of the scenes. In the desert. I mean, it's not literally the desert, it's it's a film area, but that's a location suit, so sh- location shoot. So they actually did drag him out of the heat and had to do all the things that they would involve. Brock Peter's not that young at that point in time, no offense to the man whatsoever. So that helps to explain that, but he's actually really good in general, especially around Esri. You'll notice he instantly takes a grandfatherly approach to her, just without even being asked to, just slides neatly into that role. And that kind of describes her and Jake and Cisco in the way that they all react to her. They all embrace her. I mentioned this yet last week, where I talked about how Esri evokes the whole—you know—I just just want to hug her and tell her it's going to be okay. Thing. Well, you can see that all three of the Cisco family have the same exact reaction to her. It's okay. We gotcha. And I kind of like that. And of course, it's necessary because it shows the characters embracing a new character so that we, the audience, can then have a bridge to embracing the new character. If they rejected her, the audience would be pushed further away from accepting her. So, you can kind of see the out-of-character logic here as well. So, you know, Avery Brooks plays unhinged, disturbingly well. You ever notice that? I mean, what the hell can I say? I played the Joker very well, so maybe that's just... (laughs) Maybe we shouldn't judge someone based on their acting talents but um so what we have two major things to discuss at the end here i don't really need my notes on this one the first is the vision and the second is the backup plan and the eh, nature of it let's talk about the backup plan first cuz that's the easier one to talk about so let's let's cover this okay the profits a individual profit cuz we do know they have individual in, uh, identities comes up with a backup plan, or sees themselves doing a backup plan in the present past. Non-linear beings, what do you want from me? And so goes ahead and accepts being contained within a a cube, within an orb, in a very specific spot, on a very specific planet, after having specifically uh, gone and into time, to imbue themselves into an individual. Now, we've seen what Prophet and pa Wraith possession is like. It's really obvious, and it's really overt. They have the ability to communicate, but they do so like, you know, metallic voice, glowing eyes. So, what we see here is that they were willing, or perhaps capable, of using subterfuge just this once. In fact, based on what happens, it feels like it, the entity didn't give her comp- didn't completely mind control Sarah, but instead influenced her, made her fall in love with Joseph. Thus, when Sisko was born and the prophet entity left Sarah, Sarah was left with all those memories and all those feelings, but no idea why she felt them. This explains why she just backed out. However, it is probably worth noting that that's a presumption. It is possible that the prophet entity completely emceed and replaced Sarah, which means what would have happened is Sarah would suddenly wake up one day, married to a man she doesn't know, with a child she doesn't know, which would probably be enough to freak her out to just bail on the, on the spot. Both of these are possible, and both of these are very messed up. We could argue the ends justify the means, and indeed, the ends justifying the means and gray choices is certainly a major theme of Deep Space Nine in general. But what the prophet did here was wrong. Let's just be very blunt about that. The prophet forced a woman against her will to marry and conceive, specifically so that the prophet would have the perfect instrument in order to accomplish its will. Think about that for a minute. Really put that into perspective. Now, this is important because even though the prophets are Leaning towards benevolent, as I've said before, they strike me more as lawful neutral than lawful good. And this kind of helps tie into that. This is You'll notice that the, the Prophet doesn't even seem to understand why this is a big deal. Is not the answers you wanted? Of course the Prophet doesn't understand why this is, this is a big deal to Cisco. It doesn't care. It doesn't even understand the concept of caring about this. Why is this such a concept? This had to happen, so I had to do it. I mean, I already did it, so I might as well do it, right? What's the issue here? And yet you can see from our perspective how one woman, one man, and another man's lives were all basically puppeteered on strings in order to ensure that events happen the way they're supposed to. This is keeping in mind the prophets also may or may not have actually failed at their prophesying. And I say that that way because it could be argued this was designed to work this way in general from the word go. It could also be that this was always a backup plan, a just-in-case. You never know. Either way, this is, uh, is messed. Which leads me to Benny Russell. Now, this episode makes it very clear. The vision was specifically sent by the Paw Wraiths. In order to interact with him, in order to convince him to turn away, right? Okay, that makes sense. And it was nice to see. Uh, oh God, Casey Biggs. Oh geez, I suddenly can't think of the guy, the name of the guy who plays Demar. Give me one second here. <laughs> uh, Casey Biggs. I was right. God, I got it right the first time. So it was nice to see Casey Biggs out of makeup and see him as the you know Dr. Wyckoff. He was, he was, like I said, supposed to be in the last one, too. It's just scheduling issues. But the reason I bring this up, obviously the vision is there. First of all, I do have to give huge praise to the team under Michael Okuda. That's actually the summaries of basically all the d Space Nine episodes, at least all the major ones on the walls. There are very few small shots. I had the DVD release, obviously, and to my knowledge that's the highest resolution release that exists. And they actually showed a few shots, and you can read it very barely in the background. You can see, yeah, yeah, no, that's... I I remember that episode. And, of course, at the end, you can see it very clearly when he writes about Ezri and himself. But my point is, it's a good scene. It's a powerful scene. It also pissed me off the first time I see it, because the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, God. Are they trying to postulate that it's actually been Benny this whole time again? Remember, I hated that idea from the last episode. Now, the episode then makes it pretty clear very quickly that, no, this is a specific vision that he is being given. And, like I said, this is also a Paw Wraith vision. So those are facts, but I want to talk about something. It is undeniable that the original intent of the Benny Russell thing was to lay the groundwork for the eventual ending. That the whole series, and possibly the whole franchise, has been in the mind of Benny Russell. Okay. But that was the original intent, which was then torpedoed because it was shot down by... Rick Berman, and one of the few good things he's ever done in his life. So, he speaks so ill of that man, and I don't feel bad about it. Anyways, having that original intent torpedoed means there's now room for interpretation where there wasn't before. Now, this is interesting. I have heard a theory, and the moment I heard this theory, I was like, that makes a weirdly large amount of sense. Now, the last time we all assumed it was the prophets sending a vision to Cisco, you know, in the Benny Russell episode, and that vision was what was, you know, going to, it helped him to get over things. It helped him to recover from his difficulties and blah, 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 blah. But, but if you think about it for a moment, his drive, his, I hate to say it in such a way, but his self-destructive drive, his defiance, his need, To say, screw you, his need to stand his ground, even in the face of the Undefeatable, meant that he was kind of stunlocked, in a way. Stuck into that repeating pattern. Now, he ended up breaking out of that in the end. But, at the same time, the theory, I'll just jump right into us here, the theory is that the Paw Wraiths sent the original vision as well. We know definitively that they can, they do so in this episode. It's also, well, as weird as this is going to sound, the more I think about this theory, the more it makes sense to me. As I've said, we do have to consider author intent in mind, but we also have to consider retcons and abandoned plot lines in mind. I mean, the Alpha Gamma thing never went anywhere either, right? But as speculators, in-universe, it actually makes more sense to me that the original vision was sent by the Paw because those kind of visions, that's not really the way the prophets work we see how the prophets work personally, we've seen it many times we've seen it since Emissary we see it in this very episode but those visions, those are different those kind of shift into a different direction a different approach for things and I kind of feel like that. this not only helps to explain that, but also helps to explain in part the motive behind it just food for thought As ever, I'd be curious what you guys think of that concept. Now, realistically speaking, what's supposed to be said is obviously the first one was the Prophets, and the second one was the Poweraiths. Just something to think about. Hope you've enjoyed, guys. Oh, before I actually go forward, I want to say one last thing. At the very end of the episode, again, they're trying to introduce Ezri to the audience, not just the characters. At the very end of the episode, you know, Ezri shows up. She's like, hi, Julian, O'Brien, Quark, Worf, we need to talk. And they're like, hey, who's that? Oh, that's Ezri Dax. All of them just kind of have this, huh. And their overall reaction is, okay, yeah, okay. I mean, they knew they'd save the symbiote, but Sheer was the one who did it. Worf's reaction is interesting. Remember, he has just returned from a deadly and horrifying mission, a suicide mission that he managed to survive that destroyed an entire shipyard in the name of his deceased wife so that she could get into heaven, Stovakor. And all of a sudden, there's Dax walking right in front of him. And I know this is going to sound horrible, but I don't think Worf has enough emotional experience with understanding what he would feel at seeing Esri Dax, even understanding intellectually that that's a thing. Or to put it into other terms, how many times has there been a companion who has survived two doctors and who didn't know how to deal with the second one because they kept kind of thinking it was the same person even though, by all accounts, it really wasn't. Just interesting. So Worf says, it cannot be, and he just walks off. So, we have now established the next major recurring thread, which we'll be talking about in the future, next time.